from Movendi International, I am Mike Dünnbier. This is the Alcohol Issues podcast. It's Thursday, September 24th, 2020. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Alcohol Issues podcast, our weekly conversation about the latest alcohol issues in policy and science and new alcohol industry revelations. Every episode we are also bringing you an in-depth conversation about alcohol issues of global importance. This week we highlight four alcohol issues that we think deserve special attention. In policy news we talk about Sweden's plan to raise alcohol taxes and we take a look at two European countries' alcohol policy during the second wave of COVID-19 infections. And interestingly, this week's Science Digest and Big Alcohol Watch overlap, meaning that we are discussing two new compelling studies that help expose alcohol industry strategies. But first, we begin with an in-depth conversation. This week, we are joined by Katerina Georgi, the CEO of FAIR, the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education in Australia. With Katerina, I'm discussing a massive advocacy success to secure alcohol warning labels in Australia and New Zealand against heavy alcohol industry opposition. We talk about the decision as such and Katerina reveals the tactics of the alcohol industry. But the main focus is on the lessons that can be drawn from this advocacy success and what the future holds for other alcohol policy solutions. Here is the conversation. We can just start by um, who are you, Katerina, and, and what's your role at FAIR? Sure. So uh, my role is as the CEO at the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education. And I've come back to FAIR. I previously worked at FAIR four years ago Uh, as the policy and research director. So I was very excited to come back in this role and work with this amazing team. And what is it that uh, FAIR does? The, the name, I think, gives it away a little bit already, but what are the things that you're dealing with? How are you working? Sure. So FAIR works to create healthy and safe communities that are free from the harms from alcohol. And we have an incredible team who work to understand the research, develop policy, change systems to help to prevent these harms. We also do health education as well. And we engage with communities and health professionals and community organisations from across Australia to help to achieve this aim. I, I think this work is really important because I've worked across the not-for-profit sector and I've seen the devastation that alcohol can cause on families and children and communities. And it's something that we can do something about. So I'm really, really happy to be part of a movement of people in Australia and across the world who are helping to do that. And so um, in this context, Lately, um, FAIR, but actually also colleagues from New Zealand, you have had a quite significant advocacy success and advocacy victory with getting pregnancy warning labels um, for both Australia and New Zealand. And me as an outsider, can you explain why this includes New Zealand as well? And can you then please explain what this uh, decision 
uh, by the uh, policymakers actually is about? Sure. So the way that alcoholic products are labelled in Australia and New Zealand is regulated under the Food Standards Code by a body called Food Standards Australia and New Zealand, or we call it Bazans. And the reason is because it, we love an acronym in this space, don't we, Mike? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the reason is because our countries trade so closely together that it makes sense that these sorts of things are regulated together. And so this code stipulates the way that food and alcohol and um, other drinks are regulated in terms of the way that it's labelled, but it also focuses on food safety. Uh, and that's the way that these things are regulated in these two countries. So when a decision is made to change a label, then the code needs to be changed. And there are 10 different jurisdictions that are involved. So it's every state and territory in Australia, plus the Australian government, plus the New Zealand government. And a decision has to be made by a majority of those um, people to change the code. And so in engaging in advocacy to change the code and to have a mandated alcohol health warning around pregnancy, then we needed to engage with people across the country in each of those roles mm. to try and ensure that there would be a majority who would vote for this. And this is really important because uh, alcohol exposure during pregnancy leads to fetal alcohol spectrum disorders Alcohol exposure during pregnancy can also lead to miscarriage and stillbirth. And we think it's really important that people have the information they need uh, to be able to make um, informed health choices around alcohol and pregnancy. And that's not just women. It's also any future parent, any future auntie, uncle, cousin, the broader community, so that we can create a supportive environment for alcohol-free pregnancies. And that's why this label is so important. And this is interesting that you mentioned a little bit of the alcohol harm um, before, during, and actually even after pregnancy, FASD and miscarriage uh, are examples. Can you talk a little bit about the health burden? I know it's very actually difficult to know exactly because it's so under-researched. Um, but what do you know about um, the alcohol-related pregnancy burden or health burden during a pregnancy in Australia? Yeah, what we do know is that about 50% of women say that they drink alcohol during pregnancy. Wow. Um, and, but after knowledge of pregnancy, that drops back considerably. Hmm. And so there's a few different things that we need to think about. Uh, and the first thing we need to think about is how can we make sure that this information is available? Because 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. Mm. Um, and how do we make sure that when people know that they're pregnant, that they know that this is the information as well? And in Australia, our guidelines are about to change. And this change is going to come into effect over the next few months. And it will clearly state that during pregnancy, alcohol should not be consumed at all. Mm. And so it's taken a long time for this information to be communicated. Um, and the reason, and so it's really important that we focus on the fact that the information hasn't been great. It hasn't been consistent. It hasn't been provided uh, across the board. But in Australia, we've got this fantastic opportunity to change that now mm. because we've got labels that will be coming in over the next three years. 
Uh, and the, the label will say alcohol can cause lifelong harm to your baby. Mm. Um, we've also got a national awareness campaign, which the Australian government provided funding to FAIR for, which will go over the next four years. Um, and it will target the, the general community. It'll also engage health professionals uh, and work with, with groups of the community who also um, have higher rates of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So we're really excited about this time now and the potential to create change because for yeah. the first time there'll be consistent information about this. We have been following and also supporting these broad advocacy efforts and we have just seen it also from afar how many community organizations, professional organizations, individual people were actually uh, joining the cause and supporting it. Um, but from the beginning, I think you mentioned the term, you were advocating for a health warning label. So broader, I think, than a pregnancy warning label. But the decision was now to do a pregnancy warning label. So can you uh, please explain what you were advocating for and what the decision in the end is? And if you are happy about it or uh, not Sure. Um, so really important to point out firstly that I was speaking to a wonderful human called Sue Myers who started and founded No FASD in Australia. Mm. And Sue uh, sent me a note uh, that she had recorded that in 1999 she made a phone call about health warnings to politicians. Mm. So I think it's really important to say that, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of giants when we talk about this advocacy and this work. And there are people who've done amazing work over many years. And Sue was making phone calls to politicians the morning the decision was being made. So, you know, those sorts of fierce advocates and amazing humans um, contributed to that change. And the change happened over the, you know, a lot of change happened over the last 10 years as well. So um, 10 years ago, a report said that there should be warning labels called labelling logic. And so there was pressure on uh, the ministers to do something. And they said that they were going to ask the industry to implement this voluntarily. Mm. The industry did a pretty terrible job at that. Um, and so two years ago, they made the label mandatory because of um, incredible advocacy. And so over the last two years, it's been about what does the label look like? Mm. And Food Standards Australia and New Zealand recommended a label that said health warning and then had that message of alcohol can cause lifelong harm to your baby. But then Food Standards Australia and New Zealand were asked to review that and so mm. they changed it to pregnancy warning. Um, the key elements of the label, like the fact that it's red, black and white, that it'll be specified exactly how big it will be and where it will go on the bottle so that it's uh, clearly visible, that it will also go on the packaging all of those things are super important for mm. recognition. And so while the word health was changed to pregnancy, um, that message was always around alcohol use in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And I think the really key thing to focus on is when governments do great things that prioritise the health of communities, we should really focus on that as a positive outcome and really focus on it as being something that's really amazing and this will be the first time that it's mandated in this way and that it is visible because of colors like red and because of the pictogram and the words and the warning signal so we should focus on that and this outcome yeah i think this is quite remarkable everything you are explaining because it's just in, important to understand how little people know um, about the facts of uh, alcohol risks it's uh, true for cancer you are explaining 
um, how how the reality actually is for alcohol in pregnancy and so um, yeah there is a big hope that this will change and in this context I wanted to ask first of all congratulations also to being awarded this government grant I wanted to ask because the Australian government in all honesty is not known for being very good in alcohol uh, prevention and control policy solutions but here um, they seem to have stepped up even following up with this grant to um, invest more into awareness raising what is happening there yeah i, I think um the other thing that's really important to point out is that on world uh, no fasd day on the 9th of september time's a bit weird at the moment so i was trying to figure out if that was last week or the week before <laughs> yes i feel <laughs> um, you <laughs> the government announced a further $24 million investment in diagnosis uh, and support for people with FASD and information sharing. And so now we have the biggest investment in FASD prevention uh, and FASD support that we've seen from our federal government. And um, the health minister has said that this is an area that he's very passionate about. Mm. And so I think that that's, that's huge and that's significant and, and we're very pleased to see that. And it's great to see them taking leadership in this space. Mm. Um, alcohol is regulated at many different levels in Australia. And so, there, you know, there can be one state or one area that's pushing forward on something and in other areas it can uh, be a, a different story. But in relation to FASD prevention and in relation to this investment and these warning labels, it's a really positive story and it's, it's great for the health of people and families and communities. Yeah. And you have already uh, mentioned that uh, 10 years ago, a key report initiated action on um, alcohol during pregnancy uh, in terms of labeling and the alcohol industry failed in their self-regulation efforts. Um, how much did the alcohol industry interfere in this process now? Is it the alcohol industry that changed the wording or what is it that they tried to do? Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the first really important thing is that we're talking about large alcohol lobby groups. Mm. Um, and that's a really important thing to point out because nearing the end of, of the campaign, some smaller producers were coming out and saying, we're really happy to do this. Wow. Um, so it's really important to distinguish these lobby groups and who they're there to represent. And these large lobby groups turn around and they say, we represent everyone. And they use the, the little guys as the picture that they put forward. Mm. But really they're there to, to represent the people who are funding them and the people who are funding them and bankrolling them are the large corporations. Mm. So the sorts of things that they were saying, you know, 10 years ago were things like if you put a health warning label on a product, it will lead to more um, abortions, it will lead to all of this harm, all of this stuff that was completely unfounded mm. and was total fear-mongering. And then they were hold to held to account around that and the messaging just kept shifting and evolving. And in the, the last three months of the campaign, their main arguments were, in Australia, we've had bushfires, we've had the COVID pandemic as we've had across the world, and the industry is really suffering and we can't afford to implement these labels and it will cost each company 30, almost $30,000 to implement this label and there'll be ongoing costs as well. Mm. And Fazans was really clear that the cost would be much lower. So they said it would be a one-off cost 
and it would be around $4,000. But because people had a couple of years and now three years to implement, that for many of them, the cost would be nothing because a lot of them have to update their labels quite regularly, like wine producers update their labels every year. So in their advocacy, they, they pushed for the label to go back to review, which did lead for the word health to be changed to pregnancy. And they also extended out the implementation period from two to three years. Um, and they were fiercely saying that this would kill industry, it would kill small producers, and all of those things were completely overblown. And as we saw from some small producers, it wasn't true. Mm. So we've even seen a couple of small producers adopt the label straight away yeah and just say let's just get it done like there's no reason not to do this we totally support this yeah. so it was these large alcohol lobby groups who were using them as a front to try yeah. and undermine a policy that makes sense yeah and i think it's this kind of uh, lobbying talking point sounds at least counterintuitive because the alcohol producers, they are changing labels all the time. They make special labels when a football team wins a championship or when a new event is coming on. So that, did that resonate or did they actually make a fool of themselves? That message resonated quite strongly. And it was mm. the message that we really had to work strongly to, um, to really unpack when we were engaging with decision makers. And I think this sort of comes to unpacking the campaign now. And it was really important when we're talking to decision makers that, you know, as an organisation that's independent, that that is driven by the evidence, that we were able to share any available evidence. And so understanding what the printing processes were, the different types of printing by different companies, whether you're printing on a can or a bottle or the team became very knowledgeable on those things and were able to provide that information. Mm. But publicly, it's really important that your messaging, our messaging focused on the people and the outcomes. And so even if you're rebutting something, even if you're rebutting a myth, by talking about it, you're giving it air and you're giving it oxygen. Mm. So if the industry is only talking about cost and we're only talking about cost, all people hear is a message about cost. Mm. The industry were talking about cost and we were most of the time not involved in in public discussions we we were really keen to work with partners and and have people with lived experience have their voices elevated have people with FASD and their parents and carers speaking about this issue mm. um, and talk about you know the impacts on the community and when we spoke about it we spoke about how this is about the health of kids and families. Mm. So there were different levels of messaging and we, we needed to be really careful that that messaging coming from those alcohol lobby groups, that we weren't inadvertently helping them to boost that up. This is a great point. And I think you have already mentioned some uh, quite insightful lessons, but I want to go back one more time and ask about the alcohol industry because To me, it seems they want to be perceived as good corporate citizens. They want to be perceived as they care about the tiny amount of harm that the wrongful use of their products can cause. And so it, it's quite shocking actually to see that they are 
working against this kind of labeling, this kind of awareness about alcohol and pregnancy, that, that would be a simple thing for them to support, especially given uh, the facts that you talked about uh, earlier, how low the awareness is, how big the risk is, and how big the health burden actually is in, in Australia. So why in your analysis are they, did they lobby against this? Yeah, they lobbied against it because they don't want to concede anything. Mm. So they they make argue, slippery slope arguments. So mm. they turn around and they say, if we give this, then we'll give that. And so one of the arguments they were using was, well, you know, you want a pregnancy warning now, but then next people will want a cancer warning and next we'll have this on a bottle and next it'll be this big and next it'll be tobacco packets and and also, if it changes in Australia and New Zealand, then it's probably going to change in other countries as well. And these are big global companies, so they don't want to see this change. But also, they don't want to talk about the harms that their products cause to children and families. And having this label on a bottle points that out. Yeah. And alcohol causes FASD. Yeah. It's it's without alcohol, there's no FASD. Yeah. And so this is a really clearly, so it makes a lot of sense that if alcohol exists, then they should be communicating this. Um, throughout the campaign, some documents were released um, and they were briefs that were provided to ministers who were meeting with the alcohol industry. So mm -hmm. um, these ministers, before the decision was delayed, a couple of them met with some alcohol industry people and they held a round table with them, some of the big guys, Lion, Diageo, um, with um, uh, Alcohol Beverages Australia. And in the briefs, the departments, the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Health say, you know, this makes sense. It's not going to cost a lot. Here are the arguments wow. they're putting forward. This is why we think you should do it. And in the arguments put forward by... Um, the, the industry, it even said, one of the lines even said they were worried about it reducing consumption. And we were thinking, are you really worried about it reducing consumption among women who are pregnant? Like that's, it's the most wow. ridiculous thing because yeah. that should, it's wrong. And this yeah. information should be available to people. It's, it's a really, a simple thing that we can do to help to prevent harm. Mm. But they were able to make an argument around cost and impacts on small producers. Mm. And so when that's the primary narrative, no one really, people aren't thinking about health and wellbeing because they're thinking about the economy and they're thinking about impacts. And that's quite a, a strong narrative at the moment. So it was mm. easy for them to tap into that. And yeah, on this point, I think you already mentioned, this is very insightful for me listening to you that you were actually very careful in not giving air uh, to this kind of narrative and to shift the framing of the whole conversation. All the while, uh, your team was anyway making sure that you knew all the details about what the alcohol industry is talking about. But I think very often um, when communities engage in these advocacy efforts to improve health, we focus so much on countering alcohol industry talking points and countering the myths. And, and so... Um, I think this lesson is already excellent. And can you share any other lessons that you have learned in, in this entire process, please? Sure. I, messaging is absolutely key. Um, I am here and you're doing what you're doing, Mike, because we think that 
you know, families and communities should be healthy and safe and we should be doing all we can to create that. And that should be prioritised because that's the most important thing. Mm. And if we're not saying that, then it's not being said at all. Mm. Um, and so that's really important. It's really important for us to work in collaboration. Um, there were 180 organisations who signed an open letter and 4,000 community advocates who all jumped on board and called for this particular action. And to show that broad range of support from children's organisations, from health organisations, um, consumer organisations, from people across the country, mm. was really important to show that this was something that impacted on and touched on so many people. We even had a former Governor-General, Quentin Bryce, do mm. media around this. Um, because she's so passionate about him, because she's a, a patron of No Fazzy. So that was critically important as well. Um, it was really important to speak to everyone. So really important to speak to every politician, whether they were really supportive of this measure or opposed it. Um, sometimes I think we only speak to the people who, who we think will agree with us, mm. um, but we need to have those hard conversations too and we need to understand the different viewpoints that people have because... People are good and they want to do the right thing and we just need to be having the conversations with people so that we can all be on the same page and at times we'll agree to disagree. You know, at times I agree to disagree with my husband even. Mm. Um, but we still have to be having those conversations. It's super important. Yeah. Um, and just making sure that we were constantly reminded of the reason that we were doing that, doing this. And so working collaboratively with no FASD Mm. and working with parents and carers of kids with FASD who were spending so much time making calls and sending letters and sharing their stories in videos. And um, when I got tired and thought, okay, can I send another email? It's 1am. Do we have another, like, can I make another call? <laughs> can we do another? I thought about them and their strength in advocacy and the sorts of things they were doing. And when we found out that the outcome was that the label had been supported, making the phone calls to them was wonderful because mm. I was speaking to amazing humans and amazing mums who'd been making calls who were in tears mm. because they were so glad that they could impact, you know, make this impact and try and prevent um, this from happening to other people. Yeah, now I actually got a little bit emotional because I think this is also what you talked about earlier, that the harm that we try to prevent and reduce, that's a reality for people. It means something in their lives. It means something in the family, in, in my own life, so to say. And I think the point that you highlighted that the decision makers, most of them want to do the right thing. Not all of them know what the right thing is. So it's actually our job to support them in making that journey, at least. I think that's very important. And to be able to combine this with the lived experience of, in this case, the no FASD people, the, the women and, and families affected. Um, so the stories and the evidence um, that you have, I think that is, uh, is very powerful. So in this work now with this success and uh, the additional uh, government funding, what are the next steps um, that you're looking at uh, going forward? 
Yeah, so the next steps on the um, label are that we're, we're seeing it rolled out and we're having a look at, at what might happen next and what the impacts will be um, uh, potentially globally. Um, for the awareness raising campaign, we are, we've, we're convening a group of amazing humans from across the country to develop and, and test different um, concepts for that to be rolling out um, next year. And for more broader work on FASD policy and advocacy, we're, we're going to get together and have a chat about, you know, what are the other needs? What are the other things that we can be progressing? Because we've got this wonderful community now of people who really want to take action um, and who really want to see change and who are incredible advocates. Mm. Um, and so we're continuing to work with them as well um, and support, you know, organisations like No FASD with things like FASD Awareness Month, which is happening in Australia at the moment, to help to elevate the voices of people with lived experience and, and to step back and listen uh, so that we can provide the best support to make a difference to people's lives. I think this is actually a very beautiful point that in the end, it's not only about the label that you succeeded that will be on alcohol products um, in three years time, if I understand, but it's mm -hmm. also about the way. So the community you have built now, the support that FAIR is giving to different community groups and everybody coming together, understanding that, as you were saying, if we work together, difference will be made and and change uh, can can come so i think that this sounds great that you are actually building on bringing everybody together uh, strengthening the movement going forward absolutely i feel very 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 lucky um to to be hearing the amazing stories of incredible humans who've been so significantly impacted by alcohol um, and I, if, if there's something that, some way that we can help, um, then that's great and, and we should be doing that. So it's, it's been a really great story of, of a group of people from across the country and across New Zealand mm. coming together um, over the last 20 years in the longer campaign and the last three months in this last push. And it's been really lovely to, to come together and, and talk about what that now means for people and the impact that it will have on people's lives, because that's why we're here. That's, that's why we do these things. Yeah. And I think this is a wonderful conclusion of, uh, of our conversation. <laughs> so thank you very much for taking uh, time and uh, good luck, all the best. And thanks for, spreading this kind of inspiration to advocates around the world. Thank you. Thanks for having me on and thanks for all that you do. Great. And I hope we have a chance then to uh, talk again about the awareness raising campaign um, and some other things that uh, you are then advancing, as you said, in, in FAIR. So there's, we can look forward to lots of uh, more greatness coming out of uh, FAIR and Australia. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we're very much looking forward to sharing all of the very exciting things. Wonderful. In terms of alcohol policy news, this week we published a story about alcohol policy developments in Sweden and we take a look at the role of alcohol in the accelerating spread of the coronavirus in some countries and how they are responding through alcohol policy uh, to the pandemic. But first, 
um, an important development in Sweden. The Swedish government has announced a plan to increase alcohol taxes. The planned increase is to be included in this autumn's budget bill and is set to take effect from 2023. The tax increase will generate an estimated 550 million Swedish crowns in additional revenue for the government. And the last time Sweden actually adjusted the alcohol tax was in 2017, so uh, many years ago. The alcohol tax uh, currently in Sweden is not actually indexed and um, that means alcohol has actually become cheaper in relation to Swedes purchasing power, inflation and rising wages over the last years um, since 2017. So for example, compared with 1995, the alcohol taxation level in relation to people's income has fallen for beer, wine and liquor by 32%, 22% and 15% respectively. But the significance of the announced alcohol tax increase lies not only in the issue of alcohol affordability, but is also about the massive scale of alcohol costs to Swedish society. Just in late 2019, a landmark report found that alcohol costs Sweden about 10 billion euro every year, which amounts to 0.2% of the Swedish GDP every year. That report showed that alcohol harm burdens the healthcare and social welfare system, the economy and productivity, the judicial system and police, as well as people's quality of life. In this context, IOGTNTO, the leading civil society voice for alcohol policy development, welcomed the announcement of the alcohol tax increase and added two interesting perspectives. Irma Kilim, the head of drug policy at IOGT-NTO, commented Now that the healthcare workers have run marathons and society needs money to build the economy, alcohol policy can play a small but important role. The increase in 2023 goes a long way. Permanently indexing the alcohol tax would be a natural step before the next budget and could strengthen healthcare said Irma Kilim, head of drug policy at IODT-NTO. In terms of the links between alcohol and the spread of the coronavirus, we shed light on the situation in Estonia and France. Both countries are facing a fast acceleration of infections and both countries have identified alcohol as fuel to the spread of the coronavirus. For example, the government of Estonia has now re-established the late-night alcohol sales ban as COVID-19 cases started to accelerate rapidly following the relaxation of coronavirus restrictions in the country. Earlier during the pandemic, Estonia had already once banned nighttime sales of alcohol between 10 p.m. and 10 a.m. from March 18th until May 31st. But now the sharp increase in COVID-19 infections has led the government to re-establish that ban on nighttime alcohol sales to help contain the further spread of the virus. The government has reported that the accelerated spread was significantly caused by outbreaks that started in bars 
in Tartu and Idaviru counties. Alcohol use has been found to affect people's behaviors in ways that threaten protective health guidelines such as mask use and physical distancing. Developments are very similar in France. The French government is mulling a plan to ban alcohol sales during evening hours in the capital city of Paris. This is due to a surge in COVID-19 cases in the city since lockdown relaxation in the end of May 2020. A recent meeting of the Ile-de-France Health Authority, municipal officials and local police discussed the possibility of imposing a ban on evening alcohol sales in the capital from 8 p.m. daily. The ban would be effective in dispersing crowds as people, mostly young people, have started to congregate in large groups to consume alcohol in bars, pubs and restaurants. They are mostly not adhering to health guidelines, not wearing masks and breaking physical distancing recommendations. And this of course threatens to accelerate viral transmission of the coronavirus. There are other important reasons for limiting alcohol availability during the pandemic. As the World Health Organization has advised countries, these reasons include that alcohol increases the risk of infection and the risk of more severe COVID-19 disease progression, that alcohol actually weakens the immune system and that alcohol-related injury, diseases and violence increase the burden on healthcare and emergency services which are already near or over capacity during the pandemic. This week's Science Digest and Big Alcohol Watch actually overlap, meaning that we are discussing two new compelling studies that help expose alcohol industry strategies. The first study we want to highlight was recently published and exposes how the alcohol industry uses so-called nudges and sludges to exploit people's cognitive biases in order to undermine awareness of alcohol harm and recognition of scientific evidence. The study entitled Dark Nudges and Sludge in Big Alcohol, Behavioral Economics, Cognitive Biases and Alcohol Industry Corporate Social Responsibility was conducted by Mark Pettigrew, Nathan Mani and colleagues and was published in the Milbank Quarterly. Nudges exploit common cognitive biases in order to influence behavior and decision-making and steer people towards certain options but also allow them to go their own way. Dark nudges aim to change consumer behavior against their best interests. So dark nudges encourage the consumption of harmful products. And sludge uses cognitive biases to make behavior change more difficult. So with this study, the researchers have identified dark nudges and sludge in alcohol industry corporate social responsibility materials. These undermine the information on alcohol harms that they disseminate and may actually normalize or encourage alcohol consumption. So far from being altruistic, far from being socially responsible, the alcohol industry's CSR buddies 
use dark nudges and sludge which utilize consumers' cognitive biases to promote mixed messages about alcohol harms and to undermine scientific evidence. Policymakers and practitioners should therefore be aware of how dark nudges and sludge are being used by the alcohol industry to promote misinformation about alcohol harms to the public in order to be able to counteract and curb the alcohol industry in this regard. And now on to the second study for this week. The second study we want to highlight exposes alcohol industry strategies to undermine independent science. The study by Jim McCambridge and colleagues entitled Declared Funding and Authorship by Alcohol Industry Actors in the Scientific Literature, a bibliometric study, was published in the European Journal of Public Health. The study found that while there has been a steep decline in the alcohol industry conducting their own research on health, there has been an increase in the alcohol industry funding health research by providing financial support to researchers or via alcohol-related organization. This type of activity allows alcohol companies to exploit a transparency loophole as many people assume these organizations are charities and don't realize the connection to the alcohol industry. The study then found that alcohol companies and related organizations are extensively involved in buying scientific research, indicating the serious risk to independent science about alcohol harm and policy solutions. The scale, nature and breadth of the alcohol industry's influence on scientific research relating to alcohol harm, public health and alcohol policy provides serious cause for concern. Many of these studies make claims about the protective cardiovascular effects of alcohol and suggest that substance abuse problems are down to individual choices rather than industry behaviors, which illustrates the fundamental conflict of interest at play when economic interests seek to generate scientific results that benefit their business objectives. To read more about this week's alcohol issues and to provide you with more details and sources, we have referenced all stories in the show notes so that you can easily find the latest Science Digest and all alcohol policy news. Of course, we also link to FAIR and the success story of their advocacy efforts. And if you have feedback, if you have questions and suggestions, please get in touch. We provide you with the contact details in the show notes and we really welcome to get feedback from you. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pinho, Taraka Ranchigoda, Kristina Sperkova and Mike Dünnbier. Our theme music is by LF Music. That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week.